Good morning. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime. Hello, Katie. I'm Patrick Martins. Patrick Martins of Heritage Foods USA. Um, And we have an amazing show lined up for you today. Uh, The first guest we will have, and we'll be jumping to her in just a minute, is the eminent Dr. Temple Grandin, a PhD uh, doctor of animal sciences, um, and somebody who has basically been responsible for uh, single-handedly revolutionizing the meatpacking industry. And... um, following temple right after that we're going to have Anne malo who is coming to us from whole foods she is in charge of their uh, global animal partnership which is an animal welfare certification program that whole foods is adopting uh, in order to determine the criteria from which they will purchase meats uh, around the globe and that is uh, partly a project that temple grandin has been involved in so that seemed like a good interface our show today is Sponsored by Hearst Ranch, Hearst is the nation's single largest single source supplier of free range, all natural, grass fed, and grass finished beef. And since nineteen, uh, sorry, 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. And they are certified humane, and I believe animal welfare approved, but definitely certified humane. Oh, I would think so with this kind of a program. So um, without further ado, should we come right back with Dr. Temple Grand and Jackie? <laughs> How long will it take for my heart not to break? This is the main course, and we're on the phone with Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin is a designer of livestock handling facilities and a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. The facilities she has designed are located in the United States, Canada, Europe, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, and other countries. And in North America, almost half of the cattle that are processed... Uh, are handled in the central, uh, excuse me, center track restrainer system that she designed for meat plants. Um, Dr. Grandin, hi, Temple. Hi, it's great to be here today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real Thank honor yeah, and a real honor. privilege to have you with us today. It's very exciting. Um, Temple, let's um, let's just jump right into the whole livestock world okay. and talk a little bit about um, what Patrick was wondering, what are the basic things that are required to make an animal feel happy, safe, and reasonably secure um, well, on its way to the p- packing plant. I get asked all the time if cattle know they're going to get slaughtered. And that's a question I had to answer when I first started my career. So I'd go over to the local swift plant, watch the cattle go up the chute, and then I'd run out to a ranch or a feed yard and I'd watch cattle going up the vaccinating chute, and I found that they behaved exactly the same way in both places. And then I started trying to figure out what are cattle really afraid of. So I got down in the chutes to see what the things were they were balking at. And they'd balk at a coat on a fence. They'd balk at a shiny reflection on the floor, a piece of chain hanging down, seeing people walking by up ahead, (coughs) seeing moving equipment. And if you remove these distractions, then they walk up the chute. They also are really scared of the dark. In many, many plants, I found that just putting a light on the entrance so it wasn't dark would entice the animals to enter. They don't like the dark. 
They don't like little moving distractions. They don't like air blowing on them. And I would also um, add some solid panels so they wouldn't see some of these things. Another thing that's super important is non-slip flooring. I just cannot emphasize that enough. If the animals are skidding and sliding around, they're going to get panicky. And uh, how did you, uh, was it just through observation that you noticed all this? Because, uh, you know, how come other people hadn't figured this out, uh, you know, with the beginning of slaughterhouse, uh, slaughterhouses in America? Well, and it isn't just at slaughterhouses. It's also in handling facilities. Well, most people just don't notice visual detail as much. Um, this gets into the whole thing of verbal thinking versus visual thinking. And when I give my animal behavior lectures, I say to people, if you want to understand animals, you've got to get away from verbal thinking. Because I find a lot of people, I have to, it's really hard for me to get them to notice those things, those details that scare the cattle. I have to give them long verbal checklists. But it's amazing how fixing these things can help. And when I started doing my work on proving the plants and developing an auditing system for uh, large uh, packing plants, which was originally implemented by McDonald's Corporation, and when you've got that kind of economic power behind you, you can make them clean it up. And the good news is, is out of 75 plants that were on that original proof supplier list, we didn't have to rebuild the plant. What we had to do was put a lot of non-slip flooring in. I had to do a lot of changes with lighting, adding lights, moving lights, putting up panels so they wouldn't see stuff that scared them. And with a lot of simple changes, we fixed most of the plants. Only three of them had to rebuild the front end of the plant completely. Um, Katie's going to be asking most of the questions in this interview because she she met with you and, and knows a little bit more than I. But I, I wanted to ask this question: How did you first break into the business and convince any you know power that be that these were important issues? Like how how did it first start? Well, my first breaking into the business was getting some articles published in some cattle magazines. I was writing for the Arizona Farm Ranchman, and I wrote one of the first. Uh, articles I ever wrote was called Shoot Losses Aren't Accidents, and I got it in Beef Magazine. In fact, it's actually shown, flashed up briefly in the HBO movie, and I had pictures in there of some of the things the cattle were afraid of. I took pictures of stuff like shadows, and I put it in the Beef Magazine. Several other cattle magazines picked it up, and uh, people started to get interested in that. And did, did um, Temple, did you find that there was resistance to your ideas? I know that in the movie, for instance, people who saw that saw that, you know, in some cases you were sort of poo-pooed. But, I mean, it seems to me that the industry has been pretty quick to adopt uh, the practices that you have suggested. And do you think that that's still an ongoing, do you still have challenges in that direction? Well, or are what, people I have really... found, what I have found on animal handling is selling the design actually is the easy part. Getting uh -huh. the person to install the equipment, that's actually easy. The thing that's really hard is getting people to operate it correctly. And the reason why I spend so much time working with the various uh, people that are auditing animal welfare, and I've done some work with Ann Melio and the Whole Foods people, is that large buyers like Whole Foods or McDonald's are in a position to, to make suppliers, you know, do stuff right. And I'm spending most of my time now working with um, helping people write up um, auditing systems that work. You know, one thing I find on working with people on auditing systems is people put all this vague wording in there, like, you know, do it properly or something. I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> Good question. You've got to have something very visually specific. So I've worked with Whole Foods and many other companies just on writing guidelines. And the thing that we had to do in this auditing was get people to handle the cattle right. 
You can get them to put the facility in, but are they going to manage it and use it right? That was really frustrating. What I have found is about 20% of people are kind of naturally good stock people. Then there's a whole great big middle ground that you can supervise and manage. And then there's a bottom 10% of people that absolutely shouldn't be handling cattle. They like to hurt them, and they just shouldn't be there. Yeah. And the big plants and the little plants, you know, had to fire a number of people. Well, we I actually, uh, anecdotally, I will tell you that um, I was talking to a, a grass uh, farmer in Connecticut who described a plant in Athol, Massachusetts, that you had designed. And he said he went to that plant with his animals and he was so disgusted by the way that they handled the cattle and the pigs that he decided not to use them. And well, I and said he that... Should, uh, he shouldn't be using them. And this is this drives yeah. me absolutely crazy. I designed something nice, but I can't be there to make them right. use it right. I mean, this is the problem. It sounds to me like one of the biggest issues that you have is training the personnel and making sure that those training, um, you know, courses actually stick with them. I noticed one thing when you and I toured that big plant in uh, Fort Morgan at Cargill that um, the the guys that that's that noise was a big factor and that even though they used those little rattle paddles, it was kind of sparingly and you were like all over the one guy because he was doing it too much. And I thought that was a really interesting part of, of your program is like not just controlling light and shadow, but also controlling the noise factor. You well, want to talk a little bit noise- about that? the most important noise to control is what comes out of people's mouths. There's actual <laughs> research that shows that cattle differentiate between machinery noise. Now, they may not like the machinery noise, but they actually get more worried about people screaming and yelling, and their heart rate will go up more with screaming and yelling than with just the sound of gates slamming because they know the difference between the two things. And it's getting people to operate things right. Now, Cargill's actually got video auditing right now where auditors over the Internet tune in at any time to make sure that people are doing things right when the back is turned. Because one of the big problems, and what happened at that other little small plant, was when the back's turned, they're doing bad things. Right, they just go back to the default position. That's of... the problem, and that's the problem. And there's no way I can design a system to stop that. And that's the reason why I'm spending most of my time now on, on working with large buyers like Whole Foods or, or McDonald's so that... Um, uh, they audit things and make them do it right. Yeah. Well, we're actually going to have Ann Malo on the show after you, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about your work with Whole Foods in a minute. But um, before we get there, obviously we have tons of other um, questions for you. Okay, all right. So, um, so the, the whole concept of what livestock really need to be happy, is it as complex, do you think, as animal rights group thinks, uh, groups think? Because, I mean, one of the biggest issues that we run into, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but sort of the, the alternative food versus commodity food. And, um, and so people on one side of the equation are, you know, very hostile towards the idea of concentrated feedlots. And I'm wondering what your thought is about how to make, in light of the the tremendous amount of population growth that we see over the next 50 years, how are we going to come to a compromise between animal rights and concentrated feeding? How do you think that's well, going to play out? What I way I think it's going to play out is I think the markets like Whole Foods and the, and the pasture-raised beef and things like that are going to grow organic and local movements, but it can't supply the whole population because it can't afford to you know buy from those markets. We still have got to have 
you know, a reasonable, you know, what we call large-scale commercial. But there's things we need to improve in feed yards. One of the things is a number of feed yards, I think they're going to need shade. There's been problems with heat stress in cattle. Mm-hmm. Handling is always something that constantly has to be supervised. Mud is another issue. Now, when I first started out in the cattle industry, I came from Arizona, so right. I was not subjected to cattle slogging around in mud in feed yards. They actually had good living conditions, and they had shade. The big problem when I was in Arizona was awful handling. The handling was absolutely, you know, beyond atrocious. Uh, and, and the mud issue is something that's going to have to be addressed. Uh, you know, then you get into animals that are more confined to, like, pigs and, and chickens. I mean, sow stalls, that's something that's going to have to go. But one of the things that's going to have to be changed is pig genetics because there are some people that have switched over to the loose housing and the pigs were fighting and fighting and fighting and the death losses were double. And to make that loose housing work, they're going to have to go with a, a gentler genetics that doesn't fight as much. Because How you see, interesting. We've, we've had pigs living in boxes for 25 years. Nobody's going to cull pigs that fight because they can't fight when they're in a box. And and um, there's I, I just got an email just the other day where a producer uh, switched over and has awful problems with fighting and death losses. And I've got to call them tomorrow and um, and explain to them how he's going to have to change the genetics because you've got to get a lean pig that's a, a nicer pig that doesn't fight as much. So what type of work do you do uh, from the farm perspective? Like, are you lobbying? Are you working with farmers? Do you also uh, deal with animal rights from that perspective as they're growing on a farm or in a I feeder? mainly work on, uh, I'm a technical person. And I have to call this person tomorrow that I got this email from and explain to him how he's going to have to change his pig genetics because there are certain lean lines of pigs. They are the vicious, most nasty fighters, and they just don't get along well with others. And I get sent videos lots of times from animal groups where there's really bad things, and I'll evaluate those. I work with a lot of people on writing guidelines. We still are in the design business. I have a, somebody who works for me that, that uh, does my design work now named Mark. He's really, really good on uh, uh, but I don't get involved with politics. I'm pretty much strictly a technical person, and I'm going to help these people that you know that tried to go loose housing and had this horrible increased death loss solve this problem. And I can tell you how they're going to have to solve it. Um, they're going to have to gradually uh, shift over to different genetics, and, and that's going to change. They're going to have to phase in the group housing slowly as their sows get old, because there's some girls, man, that they don't get along well with others. <laughs> Isn't that true in just about any species? <laughs> well, and there's chickens, too. But there are some of these laying hens are vicious, too. You see, as we selected animals to just be lean, 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 grow, 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 sometimes other bad traits accidentally got connected to it. Nobody would deliberately breed an aggressive pig. I mean, nobody would deliberately do that. But tra- traits are sometimes linked in unexpected ways. Right. And there's some lean line pigs that are gentle, and there's other lean line pigs that are just super vicious. And likewise, some sometimes people I've heard say taste is sometimes inadvertently lost during all that kind of crossbreeding and this and that. Sometimes, Well, there's, there's a real basic thing. Quality of meat and quantity of meat have two opposing goals. And I don't care whether you do it with genetics, like, you know, you go out and you get the gi- some of the gigantic cattle, or you do it with hormones, or you do it with beta agonist feed additives. But if you make that animal grow really fast and you make them really big, you get tons and tons of meat that's tough and dried out. Because in the 70s, I can remember the Kianina craze mm-hmm. when I was a livestock editor, and uh, they were going to get all these gigantic, huge, monstrous bulls were being imported in, <laughs> and, and the meat was shoe leather. Wow, and it it's I uh, uh, went through that craze, and 
And uh, one of the ways to have good grass-fed beef is you've got to go with the older type of English breeds, and they're going to they're grow more slowly. They're going to be smaller. And then you're going to have a smaller muscle fiber and a little more fat, and you're going to have more tender, tastier beef. And that's it, with a grass-fed program as opposed to a corn-fed program because it's... I mean, we're breeding corn. cattle right. We're breeding cattle right now to, you know, to fatten on corn and not yeah. be, you know, lard buckets. But the kind of cattle that turns into a lard bucket on corn, that's the perfect animal for grass fattening. Because if you use those leaner kind of cattle for grass fattening, they make awful grass fats. Yeah. Now, how many years have you been in the industry, and have you seen a market decrease or increase in quality? Well, pork. I've seen a, some of the pork right now. It's just like a, a hockey puck. Somebody was joking around saying I'll be the official pig of the National Hockey League. <laughs> uh, you know, we've bred the pig. We've bred the pig to grow, 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 grow. And you've got a giant loin and you've got thin back fat. And some of the large companies now are actually have slowed down growth a bit and have put a little bit of the... Um, little bit of the fat in also that also improves the pig's disposition and they're going to get along better in group housing so in other words a skinny a lean pig is a cranky pig well i'm not going to there are some lean pigs that are not mean but unfortunately when you just indiscriminately select for a lean rapidly growing pig you get a nasty pig that's excitable and fights a lot and bites a lot of tails and the other problem is uh, they forgot about leg conformation and the pork industry now is working on correcting the bad legs. And the broiler industry is also has worked on correcting some of the bad legs. They've made some good progress on that. But they didn't realize they had a problem until half the market pigs were lame. And huh. that's what I call bad becoming normal. And, and uh, it can happen slowly and you don't realize it. I mean, nobody deliberately would breed a cranky pig. Right, or a pig that's legs are not going to work no. for it. No, the problem is, is that they don't see it. It gets back to seeing visual detail. And one of the reasons why I was one of the first people to see it is because I was going out to slaughterhouses and seeing pigs that just from every different place, I was seeing many different pigs, and I saw the differences in the dispositions. Right, and also in the, in the way they were able to walk. That's um, right. Life in the fast lane never yeah, I, works. Really? <laughs> That's right. Now, do you have dogs and cats, and do you keep animals at home, or is your uh, connection to animals mainly just, uh, you know, on the big level like, like you're Well, I'm about? traveling 90% of the time, and I just no way I can have animals. I'm out of town most of the time, mm-hmm. and uh, Mark, who does my drawing for me, he's got horses, so sometimes once in a great while I get out and visit them, but I'm spending most of my time traveling, and... and uh, and doing a lot of talks, but I, but my most of my animal work right now, I've been working with various clients on their animal welfare guidelines. I've been working on training auditors to audit animal welfare, because you've got to, you want to audit stuff that's directly observable. You get some of these checklists, you've got all this paperwork stuff. Well, paperwork doesn't tell you if something's good or bad. I want to go out and see how many lame cows have I got, how many skinny cows have I got, uh, how the, do the cows have lice on them, are the cows dirty? Uh, how's the handling? I want to score the handling. One of the things we score in a packing plant is how many cattle are mooing their heads off during handling. Right. And when you went and visited that plant, you didn't hear any mooing there. Not a peep. Now, um, how many of these uh, certification groups, like Animal Welfare Approved, Certified Humane, I mean, how, are there tons of good ones out there or just a well, few? They, well, basically, they, the big, you know, the... Well, the first thing I worked on was the was the scoring system for the large slaughter plants, where you have a very um, simple scoring system where it counts. Well, how many animals did you actually shoot on the first try? You're allowed three cattle out of 100 mooing. You're allowed one animal out of 100 falling. 
And if you hang anything live up on the rail, you're going to fail the auto automatically. In other words, they've got to make they got to make certain numbers, and it's all stuff you can directly observe. And you stand there and you score the cattle as they go through, you know. And and when I first worked on implementing this in 1999, there was huge big changes. And then the little plants had to catch up because the little plants had a bunch of bad stuff going on them. And one of the things we learned with these great big plants was out of the 75 original McDonald's suppliers, three plant managers had to be fired. And right. one of the problems we got with little plants is management's family, and if it's bad, I can't get rid of it. Right. I hate to say it, there are certain people that have to be gotten rid of, and I know that's not nice, but there's some things that have learned now after 11 years of implementing these things. No, I, uh, I absolutely agree. Now, you said one thing. This was not a question we had planned for the interview, but you mentioned horses. If you could just in a second describe uh, or where, what you feel about slaughterhouses and horse meat, because I know that's been a very fiery subject and, you know, whether or not it's a good or bad thing to have horse slaughterhouses. Well, what's really bad is to have a whole lot of horses go down to Mexico, and there are two EU-inspected plants in Mexico, but the ones that don't go to the two EU-inspected plants, it's just horrific. I'm really concerned that if people, you know, activate about things, they may have unintended bad consequences, and you don't want them going across the border. And if you think you can stop them from going across the border, I think you're uh, fantasizing. I, I don't think that's going to be possible because they'll just fake up the papers and launder them as riding horses and breeding horses. I get asked, hello, design yep, of, um, of a horse slaughter plant. Basically, the, the design can be very simple. Good non-slip flooring. Solid sides on the knockbox so they don't uh, see out into the plant. And two people have to operate it, one to handle and one to shoot. And then the rest of it's management and auditing. And, boy, I can tell you I am a fan of video auditing, audited by third-party auditors, so we can constantly be watching and seeing what they are doing because I am sick and tired of going to a plant of any kind. And everything's fine when I'm there. And then three weeks later, an animal group comes into a chicken plant that was fine when I was there, and then they were doing all kinds of stuff, throwing birds around, putting three birds on a shackle and all kinds of nonsense when I wasn't there. And it, it, you know, I'm getting more and more into the management. I can't design a system to stop bad management. Right. right. So uh, just with the horse thing, then you do believe that there should be horse slaughterhouses I'm here? I'm going to leave that open for the $64,000 question. I'm going to leave it. Right. Uh, when the potato gets too hot, I don't, I don't touch it. All I'm going to say <laughs> is is that I want, all I'm going to remind everybody is I want to make sure we don't have the worst nightmares going on in Mexico. And uh, there's a lot of horses going into Mexico. Yeah. And probably more horses going into Mexico than there is capacity at those two EU plants. And then you have the horses that go in legitimately in a semi. Then you have all the horses that go across as riders and breeders that will just go across in horse trailers or in stock trailers. And uh, the papers will probably be fake. They'll just launder them through a whole pile of dealers. And that's going to be a horse's worst nightmare. So my stance is I want to make sure a horse's worst nightmare doesn't happen. Yeah, and so I'm very worried that it will happen. People should be careful of what they wish for. I mean, That's you know. right. You know, when you when you make these uh, extraordinary, you know, measures happen, and then it's like, well, what is going to happen to all those horses? Well, and that's been a very thing, unfortunate The uh, other result. thing that people need to do, and I'm getting really concerned about this in today's society, is people, when they activate on stuff, and I don't care what the issue is, whether it's environmental or whatever, they're not finding out enough about what's going on down on the ground. Like, I talk to a lot of students today, and they, they want to become a lawyer, or they want to just go into politics, you know, if they're interested in the environment. I think they need to 
you spend a lot more time getting out in the field and finding out what's actually happening. And we're getting, we're getting way too abstract in how we deal with these things, and we're going to be getting into bigger and bigger messes. Now, has uh, PETA embraced your work? Well, PETA sends me a lot. When they have videos of bad things, they send them to me, and if they find something really bad, you know, like somebody smacking pigs up gate rods, I'll tell them it's bad. You know, I, I, I get to review a lot of the undercover yeah. videos, and and uh, some of them are, are really bad. And and uh, most of the problems I've seen in the undercover videos are bad management. Now, what is the state of slaughtering in America? I mean, would you give it an A, a B, a C? I would say the large plants, for the most part, are doing doing a good job, especially the, you know, everyone thinks big corporate's bad, but actually the big corporate plants are so heavily audited now by customers, they're probably some of the best plants. I'm not going to say they're perfect. Um, and but they have the, the money to implement these programs well, that well, you, you know advocate, what? and I think it that's what's important. It doesn't cost money to fix a lot of these things. My student uh, just published a paper in Meat Science on a very simple way to fix problems with pigs waking back up in small plants. And they have that little stunner with the two V-shaped prongs where you stick it on the pig's head first to make him unconscious, but if you don't bleed it right away, it wakes back up. So Kurt figured out how to just you'd put it on the head first, and then you give him another zap on the heart, and then the pig doesn't wake up. Right. You got a nice paper in the Meat Science Journal. That you know what it costs to do that? Nothing. Right, because you've it, already it, got the technology. You already have the stunner. You just have to put it on the head first, and then you've got to stop the pig's heart. You apply it a second time, and he found it did not wreck the meat quality. And and most of the things to fix up most of these little plants actually are not expensive, because. Most of the big plants I fixed with simple things, with a lot of non-slip flooring. Stun box, number one problem you got in a stun box is it has a slippery floor. You've got to fix the floor so it's non-slip. And that's, that's where easy. your center track thing came in so, you know, has been so revolutionary. Well, the center track restrainer is strictly for big plants. You're yeah. not going to put that in these little small plants. Right. Um, I was going to ask you this. Actually, you know what? Let's take like a 30-second break here, yeah. Temple. We're going to come right back with you. For one you, last segment. Just, and have one more segment. And then um, and there's a few, like a whole different trajectory I want to go off on. But we got to give Jack a second to tag up and, and kind of get catch his bearings. So we need stay to be considerate us. of the humans, Stay too. with us, and we'll be right back <laughs> right. with you. All right. Thanks, okay. darling. I'm alone in the dark, wasting my time in the park, because I've got... Nowhere to go Hand me a job till the market fell out Tried hard to borrow but there was no help Now I've got nowhere to go I need a job for these two hands I'm a working man Nowhere to go One last look at the land Auctioneer with his gavel in hand And he said It's got to go Worked this piece all my life This is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. 
We're back with Temple Grandin uh, of the eminent, uh, the best-selling author and eminent animal scientist. Um, Temple, this has been just terrific. Thanks so much. Um, so let's get right back into um, into something that you and I have talked about in the past, and that is the issue of ethanol subsidies. And I, a couple weeks ago, I saw that two members of Congress had in, uh, just introduced legislation suggesting the end to subsidies. But let's talk a little bit about the impact of the ethanol program on the livestock industry and what you see are the major pitfalls to it. Well, first of all, the price of corn has just skyrocketed. And another thing I'm concerned about is seeing good pasture land just being turned into uh, corn crops. I mean, there's some land that really should be grazed rather than cropped. And when people get out there and they start attacking cattle and other ruminant animals like sheep and goats, they don't realize that if you use these animals correctly on grazing land, they can actually improve the land, improve the soil. Now, if you do grazing wrong, it's going to absolutely wreck everything. And I've been going to a number of grazing conferences, um, these high-intensity grazing systems where you have the cattle come in for a short period of time, mow the grass, then they go on to another piece of the paddock, mow the grass and fertilize it, move on to another piece of the paddock, and you can make them move like sort of like the wild uh, buffalo herds, but you use electric fencing to do that. And that's something that can improve land. We need to work on these things. And I don't know. I think there's also a big problem with um, taking food and turning it into fuel. I mean, corn, I mean, some people say, well, people don't eat field corn. Well, that's totally ridiculous. I mean, what do you think corn flakes are and cornbread and corn chips? And right. corn tortillas. And high fructose corn syrup, the big bugaboo in the dietary world. Well, let's go back to that intensive grazing uh, concept, because I'm so glad you brought that up. That's kind of exactly where I wanted to go. Because what you're suggesting is that if people learn to graze correctly on um, some of this, you know, native pasture land, that would you feel that that could replace or um, somehow compete with uh, confined area feeding operations and corn-fed cattle, or do you think that those two things are always going to be separate? Well, the thing is, is that you're not going to be able to get enough beef uh, by doing it on the, on the grazing. But I was just recently uh, was down in, in areas around in Kentucky and Virginia where a lot of land's been strip mined, and yeah. you were driving along and. And a lot of that land, uh, there needs to be grazing systems developed for that kind of land. And, and uh, you know, strip mined in the 70s, and, and the people I was with were saying, well, look at how that land is kind of, you know, kind of humped up. Um, also, you've got that in Pennsylvania, too. Sure. Things in Pennsylvania where you've got that kind of land. And there needs to be a lot of work on grazing systems. It's not going to totally replace corn feeding. The only reason why corn's fed to cattle is because corn is cheap. And uh, the idea of feeding um, uh, food, you know, using food for fuel and driving up food prices, uh, I have problems with that. And a number of my scientific colleagues and animal scientists also have problems with that. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think it's it's a at this point with corn over seven dollars a bushel, I That's mean, you right. can you can see the farms just dropping like flies. Basically, I mean, they, who can keep up with that? Not when you're getting you know what's forty to sixty cents a pound on your cattle. I mean, it's just crazy. But um, when we talk a little bit more about um, about the 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 um, one of the things about the ethanol program is that it created uh, distillers grains, distillers mash, dried distillers grains and solubles. Um, this is sort of the um, their justification for using food for fuel that you can somehow skin two cats with one or you know. Well, on the other problem, kill two birds with one stone. If they go cellulosic ethanol, you won't even have any distiller's grains for the cattle. And one disadvantage of that product is it's uh, expensive to ship. 
because it's a wet product. So uh-huh. there's a lot of cattle moving back to the Midwest and going into really intensive confinement things that are more confined than dirt feed yards. And and Ew. and in looking at welfare, one of the things I'm going to look at is how filthy, dirty are these cattle. Uh, cattle caked with mud don't have very good welfare. Right. And again, my welfare indicators, I want to look at stuff I can directly observe. It's not going to be a paperwork audit. Right, right. And how do you, um, to jump over to the other aspects of the livestock industry, um, hog and poultry uh, have, all hogs and poultry have also become, uh, you know, very big concentrated feeding areas. Have you, or gone into that model, have you been working in those two uh, sectors of the industry as well, or are you pretty much primarily a cattle person? Oh, 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 my clients have made me look at lots and lots of chickens, both <laughs> egg layers and in broilers. I talk about it in, in detail in my book, Animals Make Us Human. I yes. talk about, a lot about the issues. And, I mean, 10 years ago, I was the one who got the chicken industry to start measuring broken wings when they were handling chickens. Right. They used to think that 5 or 6% of the birds having broken wings was normal. Man, the handling was just awful. Cages were all busted up. And, and they started measuring that and got it down below 1%. I've been looking a lot at the layer issue when I first got pulled into layers, and so I'm jammed in to half a sheet of copier paper, you know, worth of space. Um, I thought, boy, this is just absolutely hideous. They can't even sleep at night without being on top of each other. That's like, you know, totally beyond terrible. And... And well, and it also creates a lot of the behaviors that you referred to earlier in the interview in terms of uh, attacking each other, biting each other, pecking each other, uh, pigs chewing each other's tails and ears off and stuff like that. So there are a lot of uh, consequences to that kind of operation. But do you well, think... We've also bred an animal that's really bad, and that is it's huh. actually very well documented in the scientific literature. You can look at the work of Bill Muir from Purdue. Do Some of this work's done 25 years ago. It shows that when you just bred indiscriminately breed layers for egg reduction, you breed layers that peck each other more. And a lot of that research, a lot of those things I have, uh, I've covered in um, Animals in Translation and yes. also in my newer book, Animals Make Us Human, and uh, gone over some of the research on this. So there's a big genetic factor in problems, yeah. problems with some of these animals. But we have to have, um, you know, un- we have to have affordable food because when I was at the movie interview at the Four Seasons, I told all the press there in the big fancy hotel, <laughs> yeah. there's maids in these hotels, and they need to have affordable eggs, and I consider eggs necessities. Ethically, I consider eggs necessities. Yes. And, and um, we've got to develop a large-scale commercial egg that's decent, decent apartment living for chickens. And right. I went out and I saw the new colony house with J.S. West. They actually have a website. You can tune into their chicken house and look at their birds, and it, it, it gives the chicken some of the amenities that chickens want. And one thing they want is a private nest box. Uh-huh. You know, they want to have a little private corner with some, you know, opaque plastic flaps around them where they can lay their egg in private. And they'll wait up in line and go in. I went and saw this system. It has the nest box. Also, the chickens can walk full posture. I actually saw chickens in this system walking in the normal posture, similar to barnyard chickens. They've got perches, and they've got a scratch area. It is still an intensive system. But it's like so much better than the regular, than the regular, um, regular cages, and it's going to be more expensive than regular cages. But but it's going to be intermediate in price to the free range housing, and free range housing done badly can be an absolute total mess. Some of the systems where they try to cram more and more chickens into the building turn into dirty, dusty mess. And this colony house, and they, in my book I call it a furnished cage system. Um, 
is, is something that, you know, maybe the, I think might be the new large-scale commercial. That's the way Europe's going because we've got to have affordable food. I mean, I worked with the, when, working on, when I was designing equipment all the time, I worked on supervising construction. Some of my best friends lived in trailers and worked on, on construction projects. We got a lot of low-income folks, and we still have got to have affordable food for low-income folks. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think, that, I think that what has to happen is that there has to be some sense of compromise on both That's ends right. of the industry. Absolutely. Where, you know, if you can and want to pay the higher premium, great. But the That's guys right. who can't pay that premium, those animals that are going into that quote-unquote commodity system still have to have the modicum of yes. of ethical treatment that I think every human I being I would agree with that. Assumes and you, their right. you saw the beef cattle at the Cargill plant get, you know, you know, there may be the handling. He might have been rattling that paddle a bit too much. But, but that was they, hardly egregious. Yeah. No, it wasn't. And you didn't hear any mooing. I mean, no. back in the old days, you might have 30% of the cattle screaming their heads off and, you know, whole, whole bunches of them falling down and cramming, ramming into things. Yeah, we've got to give them a decent life. Or as Mrs. Nyman says, a life worth living. Yeah. And I feel very, very strongly about that. But we, you know, I don't have a. We got to put chickens up in decent apartment living for uh, large scale eggs. Yeah. I don't think we have to put chickens up in the Four Seasons. Yeah. Right. You know, it's it's. Uh, you know, we need to have a decent econo lodge for the chickens, and I think that this right. uh, what J. S. West has got is a decent econo lodge apartment living for for chickens and. And, and I think be the way to go for a large-scale commercial egg. We still have to have that. That's just reality. The little small cages, when I first went there, they jammed them in, you know, the, just so tight it was disgusting. And I remember 10 years ago going up in the McDonald's corporate office, and, and I took a sheet of paper out of a printer, and I folded it in half, and I said, this is how much space your birds have. Wow. And, that must have made an impression. Well, it did. It did. And a lot of meetings, I was folding paper in half and waving it around because that really gave people a visual image that, you know, it was, it was disgusting. These birds were, like, on top of each other. Yeah. You know, that, that's revolting. I mean, we can't be doing that. No, definitely we, not. In farming, we've got to look at what we do and say, would I show that to my wedding guests? And I would show that Cargill plant you went to to anybody. Well, they showed it to Oprah right after me. I was I wrote to Nicole and said, "Now you just let any old journalist in? What's the deal?" <laughs> anyway, um, we have only about five or six minutes left because we're going to go right to Anne Malo afterwards. So I do want to check in with you a little bit about the work you've been doing with Whole Foods and creating this five-step program um, with the Global Animal Partnership. Do you want to chat a bit about that? been working with me in part mainly on clarifying the different steps. I work with a lot of people just on how do you write guidelines. You see, being a visual thinker, I don't think vague. And so you have to have something where, okay, for step one, everybody has to do certain things. Right. And, that's, and, uh, and then step two, okay, what additional things do you have to do? Step three, what additional things do you have to do? It needs to be made very clear. I've worked with many people on writing clear guidelines. I mean, I, I wrote the American Meat Institute scoring system. It's very clear. You score plants on five simple things. Whole Foods has been using it for years. So uh-huh. How many did I stun on the first shot? How many animals fell down, cannot exceed 1%? How many cattle are, you know, bellowing? It must, you know, it must be 3% or less, uh, and you've got to get them all dead. You're doing very simple scoring and mainly working with them on you've got to on clarifying guidelines and writing them so that you're clear, so you don't get in gigantic fights with suppliers on what the guidelines actually says. Uh-huh. 
And so with the Global Animal Partnership, how do they how are they different from um, from some of the other animal certification programs that I know you've worked with? Well, they're basically they're basically similar, you know, the you know I don't want I don't have the guidelines in front of me, uh, but you know, like you take some of the other things like certified humane, you know, would be equal to one of the higher levels on the Global Animal uh-huh. Partnership. Um, it's it's I mean, actually, I kind of like the idea of having a system with levels because it's going to make it easier for producers to get in. You know, like a lot right. of people that are thinking about becoming organic will go natural first and then slowly phase into organic. You know, okay, they can start out as level one, you know, then they can work up. And I think that's actually, that's actually a good thing. And the thing is, there's going to be a lot of different, you know, labels and things in the marketplace. And I'm a believer in people just getting out there and selling their, their, their label. You know, right. I don't want to get into which one's better than that. I work, I've worked for all of these labels, so I've got to keep all my clients happy, and I can't play favorites. But no, the thing I've tried to do with every client I work with, whether it's uh, one of the, uh, you know, whether it's Whole Foods or whether it's uh, McDonald's or it's, uh, you know, uh, the, the meatpacking companies, is working on, we've got to have a clear guideline and not too complicated. Man, you get some of these guidelines that have come out of Europe. It's so complicated. There's no way I'm going to be able to train the auditors. I'm an auditor instructor for Paco. I've got to train an auditor in a day and a half workshop how to do the um, do the scoring. Wow. So you have to have very very simple things. And what we require is uh, the day and a half workshop, and there's two plant visits in that workshop, and then they have to do three shadow audits with a very experienced person. So they have five plant visits in five different places before they're let loose. But if things aren't written up very simple, you can't... um, you can't, um, it doesn't work. And why, why such a small amount of training? See, the problem is, as you scale a system up and you get more and more and more people involved in it, you're not going to have the super-trained people anymore. Mm-hmm. That's just a practical reality. Right. And how do you think American, I'm just going to go off on a quick tangent, and then I want to talk for a minute about your books and about the fact that you're going to be in New York in May. But anyway, just to just to wrap up, how do you think American, um, you know, packing plants and American handling practices compare to those of their counterparts in Europe? And I know that a lot of American plants are moving into Europe. And do you see any, you know, any changes? Are we leading the industry? Are we behind? You know, how are we stacking up against some of these other um, countries? I think our slaughterhouses stack up really, really super well because they've been put on an objective scoring system. I've been over to Europe. Uh, uh, they have a lot of regulations. They have lots of guidelines, but it's not always, you know, translating to the floor. I just read a paper on a plant that was in a scientific paper that had, you know, like huge amount of cattle mooing, and they didn't even seem to be very worried about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think our plants, act, our slaughterhouses, in terms of humane handling, stack up really quite well. Uh, other countries that are really good are the major exporting countries like Denmark, Australia, New Zealand, where they've got the EU and the USDA inspecting them. They've got customers all over them inspecting them. Plants that export a lot tend to be some of your best plants because they have customers all over them all the time. Right. Very interesting. So, Temple, well, so we were going to wrap up now. So let's um, tell me about your visit here to New York, which will be coming up right around the time of Book Expo, which is, what, the first weekend of June? Is that right? 
No, no, it's in May. It's in May. Oh, oh I didn't know. Oh, I don't have the calendar. Oh, don't worry. I'll put it okay, up on the website. Okay, it's the Book not Expo. It's not in June. It's it's a, it's the last week in May, uh-huh. and I'll be at the Book Expo. Uh, I've got a new autism book, um, but I also have other books like uh, Humane Livestock Handling. I have a book called Improving Animal Welfare, a Practical Approach, right. where I actually explain in this book how to set up and implement animal welfare auditing systems that are actually going to work. Right. And not get overly complicated. Overly complicated stuff doesn't work. You've got to figure out what's the really, really important stuff to be measuring. You wouldn't right. want to have a plant that has all their paperwork in order, in all in order. They've got beautiful paperwork, and their stunner's broken, or <laughs> somebody's out there beating up the cattle. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, and you're giving a couple of talks, if I'm not mistaken, right? I've got different talks at different universities. I'm doing a talk with Vet Techs. I unfortunately don't have that calendar in front of me Can right now. Can people go to your website and see that um, on your well, news? Well, I'm doing a, I'm going to a GRAPS meeting on the Tuesday night, um, and unfortunately, I sometimes don't get the website updated the way I should. But I will be at the Book Expo um, promoting new autism book. This is called The Way I See It. Uh-huh. It's a very, very practical book aimed at teachers and parents. Yes, I'm reading it right now, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Just and in do you have the new edition or the old edition? The new edition. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. It, it, that book is strictly aimed at you know, working with autistic kids in a really, really practical way. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, if you know, I know that you told me when we visited uh, in Colorado that if, if, uh, if you would let it, autism would totally take over your life. So... <laughs> I know that there's a lot of, uh, probably at least as much work in autism as there is in animal handling. I mean, I think you have the most extraordinary schedule. And uh, Well, I don't know. I just sometimes hope, wonder how I'm going to survive. I can't yeah. even hardly read my calendar. It's got so much stuff I've on seen, it. I have seen it, and I can attest to the veracity of that statement. It's like tiny, tiny writing, and every little square is absolutely packed. Well, also, I want to thank you for the back exercises you showed me, because they Aww. really do work. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, Temple, this has been a wonderful experience for me. I do hope you'll be a guest again, and I hope to see you when you're when you're here in uh, Manhattan. I will definitely make a time to visit with you. Yeah, Either I I'll will come be to at, at, or... the, at that book expo, and it's at, I know it's at the Jacob Javits yes. Center, and they'll have my book the way I see well, it. Well, people can look up the uh, the schedule on the book expo website because it'll say. Yeah. So um, thank you, my darling, and it's been great to see to speak with you again. And uh, please be a guest anytime you want to. You know, whatever it is you want to talk about, we're always very happy to have you on the show. Okay, great to talk to you. Thank you so much Likewise. for having me. Thank you, Temple. Bye bye. Puts on his only blue suit. He hasn't quite mastered tying his tie on. The way his sweet Sarah used to It's been years since he's talked to the good Lord He's not sure he even knows how But he won't be mowing the front yard today He goes to church on Sundays now No, he don't know the words to the old rugged cross But he sings them the best that he can Cause he knows that his angel is up there in heaven And he sure wants to see her again For 31 years they were married Never 
could get him to go. Now he's up bright and early, there by 9.30, and sits on This is the main chorus on Heritage Radio Network. Our sponsor today is the Hearst Ranch. Uh, And our uh, preceding guest was Dr. Temple Grandin. And to follow up on her discussion, um, we have Anne Malo from Whole Foods Market, who is kind of, I guess, the liaison between the Global Animal Partnership, uh, which is a series of criteria that Whole Foods is the first major retailer to implement in terms of how they um, select their producers and uh, distributors of of protein products. And how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How about yourself? Great. Thanks so much for joining us. So um, let's talk a little bit. Uh, let's just, for starters, let's de- define the, the five steps of your global animal partnership. I mean, Temple was just on and she said that what she really liked about your program was that it was a, ser- a series of stages that farms could um, aspire to as opposed to being like a series of set criteria that they had to conform to. In other words, you allow for growth. So how did that model come about as opposed to the sort of more normal um, perception of, you know, animal welfare approved or certified humane. Sure, absolutely, and, and Temple's spot on. Um, this program is, even though it's called the five-step program, with there being a five-plus, there's actually six steps. Yeah. And one of the easiest ways for people to sort of conceptualize the program is to think of it as step one being a 100% indoor program, obviously not for cattle, for, for pork and, and chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as you move up into the higher steps, you then move from an indoor system into an outdoor system. And then when you reach the five-plus, you're at the pinnacle of the animal spending their entire lives, including being processed on the farm. So it really wow. is a, a very inclusive program, um, and it you know, provides the, not only the farms and ranches with that sort of roadmap, but it also gives our customers and any customer that is shopping you know, an, an opportunity to learn more about where their food comes from and really sort of understand what it takes to, to move up that into the higher steps. Now, did it cost Whole Foods a lot of money to um, to get into this program? Do you see uh, other grocery chains getting in this involved in their producers, or do you feel like that's just part of the philosophy of Whole Foods and it's going to stay that way? Well, you know, I can't really speak for other retailers, but mm-hmm. I know that at Whole Foods Market, our suppliers are really, really important to us. And with this program in particular, we wanted to make sure that they, um, you know, felt a true partnership with us and that it was a, a win-win for both us and themselves. So we worked really closely with our supply chain um, to really help the farms and ranches through the process. And, and I actually, as you mentioned in your, your introduction, I led that initiative, and that involved us going out onto the farms and ranches and, and you know, making sure that they understood um, the program and, you know, we would walk through their farms and, and ranches and properties with them and, you know, show them and this is what this standard means, this is what that standard means. And we would hold workshops, you know, so that they understood what the process would, would look like. We worked with them, you know, on supplier contracts so that um, we could make the, the program really viable for everyone. Right. So we really took, you know, the we covered the whole gamut and making sure that they felt supported, but also that they were successful as, as we, we were. And, and just to give uh, listeners an idea of the scale we're talking about, how many producers do you think that, that involved, just ballpark? <laughs> Well, over 1,200. Wow. Yeah, beef, pork, and chicken. And that we did that in a 
just a little over a year's time, and that is the whole life of the animals. So we went all the way from the cow-calf ranch right. all the way through to the finishing yards or the, the pastures, and the, the same with pork, all the farrowing barns all the way through to finishing and then with chicken as well. So it was it was no small feat, I can tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. No, it <laughs> but sounds... it was fun. It was, it was really, really fun. Great, it, great people we work with. Well, uh, we found that true. I mean, uh, you know, as you know, Patrick Martins, who unfortunately had to leave the studio, but um, he uh, he runs Heritage Foods USA. And we recently, he took uh, me and some of the other guys that work with us and then a few chefs out to some of the farms that supply Heritage. Yeah. It was an absolutely fascinating experience. I mean, the people are fantastic. And, uh, you know, their, their efforts to do the right thing with their animals are are truly heroic. Um, so when you talk about this, uh, what what is the response from the farming community been towards your program? Have you found a lot of producers who are like banging on the door saying, yes, I want to participate in this? Or or have you had to discard some of the producers who were like, no, I can't, I really can't go there. It's just not, you know, it's not viable for the way I do my farm or whatever. What's the what's the sort of overall perception in the in the community? You know, we've we've had um, a really good response um, from our suppliers, and what we've seen that's been really interesting is that um, they wanted to come in, and and they all wanted to be five or five plus producers. You know, they they all wanted to come in and be able to um, reach the higher steps so that they could um, not only you know make Whole Foods Market proud, but our our customers. And we bring them into the stores, and they tell their story to our customers as well. So we right. we actually had a great response. Um, there weren't very many farms or ranches that decided they they didn't want to participate. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a very very high uh, participation rate, um, like well over you know ninety seven ninety eight percent. Um, and you know, overall, wow. I think that we, it's been a really great, um, great what, experience for them. What what got Whole Foods? Why did you guys decide to implement this program? Because clearly, it's it's a it's a, a serious commitment, both in terms of time and money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, animal welfare is something that's been important to Whole Foods Market for a really, really long time, almost, you know, from our inception. And it's mm-hmm. it's not something that's just important to John Mackey, our CEO, um, but it's important all the way down to, you know, the team members at store level. It's, it's just something that's, I think, part of our fiber. And I think there's a great opportunity to really improve the lives of animals. And that's what keeps us and our and our customers, um, you know, really moving forward with this this sort of initiative. And do you think? I mean, you guys are always being, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say pilloried, but certainly cited for having higher than uh, regular commodity prices. Do you see? Has this has this also raised in? the prices on your proteins or or have you been able to maintain the same pricing structure and do your consumers um make a differentiation shall we say do they do they notice do they compliment do they say oh i can't pay for this now because it's just too much or how how has it been perceived by the consumer base well the our um, you know, consumer base has actually been really, really supportive of this program, and we've worked really, really hard with our suppliers um, to not actually show any cost of this program mm-hmm. at, at, the, at the counter. So we haven't passed on any of the, the cost of the program to the customer. But that being mm-hmm. said, you know, um, we are... We do adjust prices for markets and that sort of thing, but we haven't, we have not um, passed the, 
price of this program onto the customer. Let me ask you this. I mean, Temple and I were talking earlier about the impact of the ethanol subsidies on corn prices and, and thus on the livestock industry. Um, do you, does Whole Foods take a political stance, uh, you know, given that you can, uh, you know, bring a certain amount of money to bear to this question? Um, do you guys get into the politics of, of, uh, of energy versus food and, and all of that, all of the questions that, that go with that? Or do you just take a back bench and say, okay, well, you know, it's seven bucks a bushel for corn, so be it? You know, um, historically we never have, at least not to, not to my knowledge, mm-hmm. um, but we, we keep in very close contact with our suppliers and um, with the markets and really try to understand what's, what's going on out there. But as far as I know, we, we do not take any sort of political action. Interesting. I mean, I felt, because I went to the, um, to the uh, USDA conference on sustainable agriculture last year in D.C., and, and um, it wasn't your CEO, but uh, one of your major players there, I've forgotten his name now, uh, was one of the keynote speakers, and it was very, it was, he was really interesting, and he was quite political. Um, and uh, so I just wondered that, you know, given the fact that you guys are an ever-expanding chain, that you, you really do sort of uh, command a certain amount of attention, uh, certainly in the agricultural sector, and there were plenty of people who were, who were dissing, uh, dissing Whole Foods, I found afterwards, you know, it was really interesting listening to the discussions and they were like, well, these people, you know, they just think it's all earthy, crunchy, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, it was really amazing. And, well, you know, there were plenty of farmers who were like, absolutely, we want those subsidies for our corn and soybean crops. And absolutely, you know, we want to be paid for not planting X, Y, or Z, you know. So it was, it was a fascinating sort of dichotomy between, you know, these guys who are entrenched in the old school style of, our, of agriculture and then those who are, you know, more progressive and more interested in, in stuff that, uh, you know, entities like Whole Foods are doing? Well, we are very, mission, you know, a very mission-driven company, yeah. as you know, and we're really in support of animal welfare and sustainable agriculture. Um, and, you know, those are all things that we take very, very near and dear to our heart and really try to walk our walk and, and talk our talk. Yeah, I think that's, well, it's certainly a very attractive part of your, um, of your corporate image, I must say. Um, so uh, the farming community has been on board. The, the, um, the consu- Were you driven to do this by consumer uh, interest and concern for animal welfare, following some of the most, you know, the, the egg recall? And then a couple of years ago, there was that incredible, uh, what was it, Westlake Hallmark, I think it was, the company that ultimately went out of business, but that was, you know, had the very damning PETA video of the downer cow being forced to its feet and so forth that really kind of blew the lid off of the meatpacking industry. Was it, was, was your program implemented as this kind of a response to the consumer outrage or was it just something that you guys felt like, okay, this is where we want to go? You know, Whole Foods has actually had animal welfare initiatives uh, at the farm level and at the slaughter plant level for a really long time. So mm-hmm. we, we really feel that our programs give our customers the confidence to shop with us. And, and our, our customers ask questions every day. Right. And, and we have, you know, I, I would say we basically have two different types of customers if you wanted to, to generalize. We have ones that want to know everything about, you know, where their food comes from, um, from start to finish. And then we have other customers that just want to know that somebody's looking after it and and I think, you know, we can appeal to both of those types of customers. But we've had Absolutely. those, you know, programs in place for such a long time that I think we were really, you know, positively positioned that when those, you know, unfortunate events happened, we were able to come in and say to our customers, you know, this is what we've been doing for, you know, the last 10, 15 years, even longer. And this is what we're doing moving forward. So they really could shop with confidence at our stores. Yeah. 
Well, you know, that's a very, it's again, a very attractive marketing thing. And I, you know, and that's why I sort of was uh, asking you earlier about whether or not you thought other chains would start adopting this, whether you think that your Whole Foods will become a leader in the grocery industry in terms of demanding these protocols or these criteria uh, so that, um, you know, other, maybe not not every grocery chain, but uh, Wegmans or Kroger's or, you know, some of the other big ones, are they going to follow your lead, do you think? Or do you think they're going to just maintain the status quo? Well, you know, the Global Animal Partnership tells us that there is an incredible amount of interest um, in this program, and we're really in support of, of other retailers and food service and, and restaurants getting on board, because the more people that get on board, you know, the more impact we can have sure. um, for farm animals. So we're really excited about other, other players coming into the market as well. That's great. Well, listen, Anne, we're going to have to wrap it up here, um, but I thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a little more information about the Global Animal Partnership. People can go online, right? and have a look at this either on the Whole Foods site or you guys have a special site just for Global Animal Partnership, right? That, that's correct. We have our own site. We've got some blogs and there's some videos there as well if people want to learn some more. Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing but good stuff out there. And I think, you know, this has been a very interesting show in the sense that, you know, coming from where I do here at the Heritage Foods USA, um, you know, and I think people look to this station as sort of the alternative food movement. And, <laughs> and the fact that, you know, that we talked to Temple Grandin and, and she was saying that, you know, the big plants, the ones that people typically think are the bad guys are actually the guys who are really have the money and the wherewithal to implement these major programs. And here comes Whole Foods with all the many, many uh, retail outlets that you have. And you're, you're leveraging your uh, buying power into forcing changes in the industry as well. I mean, I think that's a very encouraging and exciting uh, development in the food industry. And I'm really, really happy to have had both of you on the show today to talk about the, the good developments as opposed to, uh, you know, demonizing and vilifying commodity food practices because, you know, they're just not what we think is good. So um, thank you very much, Anne Malo, for joining us today. Thank and you. It was thanks my pleasure. to uh, Whole Foods and thanks to Dr. Temple Grandin. And we'll be back next week with another issue of The Main Course. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Beer Sessions Radio. Beyond the human and environmental casualties of the triple threat disaster in Japan, there will likely also be losses to our collective food culture, from miso and sake makers to outstanding fisheries. With help from the New York State Brewers Association, the Good Beer Seal, Beer Sessions Radio, and craft breweries alike, Jimmy Carboni is hoping to raise funds that will go directly to Hitachino, an excellent Japanese brewery, through a benefit at Brooklyn Brewery next Monday, March 28th from 7 to 10 p.m. In addition to beer, there'll be food from the Meat Hook, Jimmy's Number 43, Waterfront Ale House, and a few local Japanese restaurants. All money raised will go to Kiyuchi Brewery and Hitachino Beers, which they will distribute via humanitarian aid locally. To date, the brewery, which lost 500 bottles in the earthquake and suffered some damage to its physical plant, is filtering and bottling water for its community and providing them with food. 
You can read a letter about the quake's aftermath to Jimmy from Toshiyuki Kyuchi, the brewery owner, on his site. And you can buy tickets to the benefit on brownpapertickets.com backslash event backslash 166978. That's brownpapertickets.com slash event slash 166978. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Overhopper, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network.